is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. You're some of our favorites. And this next story comes to us from a listener in Colorado, Patty Kingsbaker. And, well, take a listen to this one. It was back in um, 1962. I was 12, and um, my brother, who was 10 years older than me, was getting out of the Air Force, and he was in California. So he had made a deal with me, you know, if my grades were really good, that he would fly me out to California and that I could drive back with him cross-country when he got out of uh, the Air Force. So, and of course, I was just beside myself thinking, oh my God, we're going to go to Disneyland and I'm going to get to see Hollywood and um, Hollywood Boulevard and the stars. And, you know, it's a 12 year old. I, uh, I just, I, I figured if you went to Hollywood, you were going to see movie stars. Anyway, so I flew out and uh, we spent a couple of days in LA. We went and saw all the stars on Hollywood Boulevard. In fact, it was Thanksgiving. It was around Thanksgiving time. He took me to dinner at this restaurant in Hollywood that was really famous at the time. They actually brought a phone to our table so that I could call my mom and say, Happy Thanksgiving. I was like, I mean, for a 12-year-old, they bring a phone to the table. Then I looked across the room and I saw, I went, I know that guy. It was Jesse White, who at the time was the Maytag guy. So, you know, that was my first celebrity sighting. But we went to Disneyland, and the whole day we were there, you know, I mean, Jesse White wasn't exactly up to where I, you know, I wanted to see somebody like Annette, okay, or Frankie Avalon. And so when we were at Disneyland, the whole day, my brother would go, oh, there's Annette. And I'd go, where, where? And, of course, he was just yanking my chain and they weren't there and he kept doing that to me and I would get all excited and you know no celebrities and so but we had a great time at Disneyland and then we hit the road and we had spent the night in Needles California so we got up really early went to the gas station to gas up to head out and the gas station was kind of crowded which I really didn't notice at the time but there was a um trailer pulling a horse and there was a big like Winnebago type thing and so but I'm sitting in the passenger seat and my brother comes back to the car and he goes get out of the car Elvis Presley is standing over there and I'm like yeah right I mean I'm not gonna fall for that again and so he goes I swear to you get out of the car Elvis Presley is standing over there so I'm like I look out of the car, and sure enough, standing there in black pants and this shirt and this scarf around is Elvis Presley. So I I grab a piece of paper, and I get out of the car, and I go over to... I can't speak. I'm like, I'm standing in the presence of royalty. And he just kind of smiles, and I'm standing there with my pen and paper. And uh, he said, did you want me to sign that for you? And I said, yes, please. So he asked me what my name was. I said, Patty. So he wrote to Patty. I still have it to this day. Loving kisses, Elvis. 
And I got back in the car, and I mean, my heart was just pounding. And he got back in the Winnebago. And what it was, it was there was a Cadillac limousine, the Winnebago, and then there was a, another car pulling the horse. And in each of those, there were two chauffeurs with, you know, these overalls with EP on there, you know. And so they kind of took off. And then the guy, there was this guy who stayed to pay their gas bill and it turned out to be Colonel Parker. So my brother started talking to him and he said, Yeah, that Elvis had just finished filming this film Viva Las Vegas and that they were heading back to Memphis. He was just really nice. Anyway, we got in the car and they took off and I said to my brother, I didn't get a picture. I said, you, you've got to follow him. You've got to follow them. I need a picture. And so in the meantime, I put rollers in my hair. I'm 12, you know, and we followed them for hours. And um, sure enough, they start pulling into another gas station. And when my brother used to tell this story, he goes, rollers were going everywhere, all over the car. And, you know, I'm brushing my hair and trying to just look perfect for Elvis. And and so I got out of the car one we got to this gas station and I went up to one of the guys with the overalls and the EP. And um, I said, could I please get a picture of Elvis? He said, well, we don't have any. And I said, oh, no, I have a camera. I'll take the picture. And uh, he was just kind of snotty. He just said, you know, Mr. Presley doesn't get his picture taken like that. And I'm like, so I get back in the car. Of course, now I've got crocodile tears. I have followed Elvis for hours trying to get this picture. And um, nothing would upset my brother more than his little sister having crocodile tears. And so all of a sudden, Elvis got out of the Winnebago again. So my brother got out of the car and he said, hey, Elvis. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, can I get a picture of you with my sister? He goes, sure. And so I'm like trying to dry my tears and I'm getting out of the car and, and I walk over there and he put his arm around me and he said, hey, haven't I seen you somewhere before? And I went, yeah, a couple hours ago in another gas station. <laughs> So, um, we did get the picture. Of course, back in those days, you know, it was with a little Instamatic camera. And my brother only took one picture instead of several. And he was so nervous that it is a little blurry. But I do have the picture and I do have the autograph. And what a great story from Patty Kingsbaker. And boy, she recalls that like it was yesterday. And I can bet her brother was shaking like a leaf taking that picture. By the way, we broadcast just an hour south of Memphis in a beautiful town called Oxford, Mississippi. To the east, Tupelo, Elvis's birthplace is an hour away. And to the north, well, Graceland is an hour away. And I don't think it's an accident that the confluence of gospel and country music and blues happened in Memphis. And I don't think it's an accident that our American stories come from a place not far from where Elvis was born and where he died. Patty Kingsbaker's story, a beautiful story, and how Elvis treated her, my goodness. Just beautiful. Both of their stories here on Our American Stories.
we continue with Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series. And we've done a whole bunch of really good ones, folks. From Jack Marucci, who created a baseball bat for his boy, and it turned into, well, a force in the baseball bat industry. Uh, straight up to Bernie Marcus's story, and he's the founder of Home Depot. He was fired at the age of 49 from a former job, had an idea about this new company, which would become this gigantic, iconic company. Also Mario Andretti's story, which is just terrific, about his life, not only in racing, but in business and creating this monstrous enterprise, this powerful force in the racing business called Andretti Racing. And so many more. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and look for our American Dreamer series. And if you have an American Dreamer story, send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, all of our material sponsored by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And we now bring you the voice and story of one of their members, one of Job Creators members, Gary Rabine. I truly believe that the best entrepreneurs in the world usually start with nothing. They don't inherit millions of dollars. Usually they have an idea, they started with nothing, they take risk, and they probably go back to nothing often. Four or five times they get knocked in the teeth, they lose everything, they get back up because nothing isn't that terrible for them. They've been there before. And I know plenty of people that start with a good amount of money and they lose it and they can't get back up. I mean, they never knew what it was like to have nothing and it's earth shattering for them. So the blessing I had was, you know, we didn't have a lot. And when I started business, started with a few thousand bucks, and I can go back there any time. I enjoyed the place I was in life then and the few other times in my career that I got knocked in the teeth and really almost bankrupt. And every time it happened, I'd look at my wife. I said, it's looking pretty bleak. You know, we had a lot of dough and now it's not looking so good. And she would go, uh, well, you know what? We can always buy that same house you bought before we got married. It's a $70,000 house. I'll remodel it. We still got our faith and we've got our family and that's all we need. And so we got down to nothing a few times. I counted 25 businesses over the last 20 years that we started, and a bunch of them didn't work out. And fortunately, we've always had something going on that did pretty well. I run to people that I haven't seen in a long time or they don't know me that well, and they say, boy, you got a horseshoe in your butt. Everything you do turns to gold, Rayvine. Well, they're, they're always seeing the things that look like they're doing pretty well. But either way, that's okay. I think the most successful people in the world are people that know what it's like to have nothing, so they're able to take risk. So I think it's a blessing. We grew up in a house, we had six kids in our family. My dad worked in a factory and did side jobs. He started a tree business, selling firewood, and started doing landscaping, and my dad was a jack of all trades. He was a workaholic. When he married my mom, she had three kids already. Then they had three more kids within about a four or five year period after that. So he had six kids as a very young guy, he was only like, 25 years old maybe with six kids right so at that point he knew he, he had some mouths to feed <laughs> so he was a very uh, thrifty guy one of those hardest working toughest guys you'll ever want to know so he taught us work ethic in a big way my brother and I were the youngest of six I had four older sisters all my sisters worked just as hard as we did they cut trees they split firewood they're built like bodybuilders these girls were tougher than any guys I knew I was embarrassed. I, they used to beat up on me all the time and throw me around. I was like, God, I'm getting beat up by girls all of Every day of my life, these girls are pushing me around. I felt like kind of a wimp. And then I got to high school and realized my sisters could kick the crap out of Most of the best wrestlers were afraid of my sisters. <laughs> so I didn't feel so bad. And I ended up being a pretty decent wrestler myself because I got pushed around a lot. Anyway, we lived in this house in Fox Lake, Illinois. 
and the chain of lakes is dominant around Fox Lake. These lakes back then were shallow, septic-infested lakes. There wasn't sewer or anything around these lakes at the time. And the soils didn't allow, like your septic, to filter down into the aquifer like good soils allow. And my dad was really sensitive about the septic field being overloaded. So if it was above 60 degrees outside, we were bathing in the chain of lakes, the four-foot mud-bottom lake. On a clean day, you might, if you put your hand under the water about six inches under, if it didn't rain in a while and it was a nice sunny day, you might be able to see your hand if it's six inches under the water if you're lucky. But most days, there's a green film on the top of these lakes. It was anywhere from a quarter inch to a half inch thick. So, but my dad believed that water was clean enough, and we weren't going to stress out that septic system putting all that shower water in the septic. So from about 10 years old on, if it was 60 degrees or more, he had a bar of soap at the end of the pier and a bottle of suave shampoo. And the nice thing about ivory soap was it floated, so you wouldn't lose it, that murky water, right? But bottom line is, we didn't take a lot of bass, so maybe, maybe once every couple weeks in that chain of lakes. <laughs> the crazy thing is, uh, we used to think we were stark white kids, my brother and I, and we thought we were pretty tan in the middle of summer, but there was a scuzz built up, in a, built up on our arms, around our necks and stuff. And we didn't know why friends or neighbors, their parents didn't want their kids hanging out with us. We thought we were pretty good kids, right? But for some reason, in the back of our mind, we knew that their parents were telling their kids, don't hang around those Rabine boys, they're bad news. <laughs> but anyway, it was the way we grew up, right? And I think we ended up to be tougher for it. And guess what? I don't think I get sick as much as most people. I think we, we built up a pretty good immune system. <laughs> 15 years old, we moved to a new place. My dad needed more acreage. He needed some land to put some dirt on because he's piling up dirt in our front yard and wood and it looked like Sanford and Son. We had all this stuff in our front yard, a little aisle going down to the front door of the house. It was a little bit embarrassing. And I actually told my dad that one day. And he, I know I bothered him and I said it. But I said, Dad, I don't want to bring friends home. It's embarrassing. They laugh about our house being like Sanford and Son. Yeah, what are you talking about? That's money. That's how you make money doing all that. And I said, yeah, I, I get it, Dad, but uh, still, it just, just doesn't look good. And we were in a normal subdivision, like you know, 50-foot wide lots. He was a tough guy, so people didn't gripe about him too much, or he would confront him. So they let him do things he wanted to do. But finally he moved to a place in the boondocks with like 10 acres and had area to put dirt and all that kind of stuff. So my brother and I were in the bathroom looking at this house, and my brother and I were just eyeing up this bathroom, a nice tub, you know, and a nicer bathroom, a little bit bigger. And my dad's looking over his shoulder, and he says, what are you guys looking at? And I said, well, damn it, we have a pretty nice tub here. He goes, this is like May. He goes, are you kidding me? It's 65 degrees out. He goes, we got a creek. There's a creek only about 100 yards away from here. It borders our property. A bar of soap and the bottle of shampoo is waiting for you. He goes, get your ass down there and take your bath if you're going to take one. So sure enough, we did. Two months later, my brother and I are out there bathing. And it's a really hot day. You know, it's like 100 degrees out. And we're cleaning up after working that day. All of a sudden, my brother says, Gary, there's, there's, there's something floating down the creek there. It looks like, uh, it looks like cow crap. And, you know, we were kind of hillbilly kids, so we didn't say crap. My dad swore a little bit, and we swore a little bit for kids, but he said, it's cow crap, right? And I said, ah, come on, John, it can't be that. Boy, I said, boy, it does look like it, but, but, it, but it's awful big, you know. It's awful big to be crap, you know. And he, and he said, I think, I, think, I think it is. It looks just like, a, you know, big turds, you know, and... I said, ah, oh, come on, I can't. We go up to it, and we're sticking it with a stick and stuff. Boy, it does kind of look like it. We stomp up to the house. I said, Dad, we're not taking our bass down there anymore. We think there's crap floating down the creek. And he said, oh, come on, don't be, don't be ridiculous. 
So he walks down to the creek, he looks up and down the creek, and he looks up at the bank on the creek, and he says, that's not crap, because that's just peat moss eroding from the banks. That's all that is, it's peat moss. So he's our dad. We believe him, right? you got to believe your dad. So for the next four years or so, we continue on, and you know, we're swatting these things by us while they go by on hot days usually, only the hot days that you see these things floating down. And 19 years old, I get home working on a Sunday and got a voicemail. A friend of mine wants to know if we want to go canoeing. I said, you know what? I think I want to do that. My dad listens to the voicemail. Hey, I think I'll come with you. We got two canoes. I said, all right. Sounds good. Let's do it, Dad. Come on with us. And a couple hours later, we're coming about a mile north and west of our house. And and I make the corner. We're racing. We're going as fast as we can. Myself and my buddy are number one. We're in the front. And everybody's behind us. I'm feeling pretty good and kicking their butts, right? A lot of competitive guys, including my dad. And we turn a corner, all of a sudden, there's like a hundred head of cattle in the creek, all over the place. And all I'm thinking about is how we get around these things, man. They're, they're huge. They're all over. There's hardly any room, right? So we get up next to them. We're trying to navigate around them. All of a sudden, they're dropping bombs everywhere. And I'm looking at these things as they're dropping them. And I'm saying, I, I figured it out. I look back at my dad and said, Dad! We told you that was crap falling down the creek all those years. And he gets up next to him and he goes, Boy, I guess you were right. <laughs> he laughs. But again, I think, I think all that you know, helped our immune system out, right? So we didn't, bathe, we didn't have to bathe in the creek anymore after that. Well, there you go. And when we come back, more from Gary Rabine, this unique, unique voice. One heck of a story, an American Dreamer's story. And they come from everywhere, our American Dreamers. More of Gary Rabine's story after these messages. Here are Our American Stories in our American Dreamers series and Gary Rabine's story. Let's pick up where we last left off. My dad told me I was too stupid to go to college, and he said, you don't need college. You're too stupid, you know. I believed I could probably, right? But I was like, yeah, you might be right, but I wasn't going to college. My grades weren't that great, and I finally did pretty well my senior year, but that only put me in the top 75% of the high school class. And that was only because I wanted to make sure I played football and I, I wrestled. I was a captain of both my teams. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to get kicked off the team for bad grades. So business came natural to me. I watched my dad work so hard and taught me how to make money, taught me how to outwork anybody around me. So in high school, when my friends are sitting around the in a study hall and they're all talking about what college they're going to, I was a little bit embarrassed, right? This friend of mine said, you know, where are you going to school, Gary? And this friend of mine was a neighbor, so he kind of knew where I was going. But I said, you know, I'm not going to college. I'm, I'm going I'm to work. I'm going to either do landscaping or paving. I'm going to start my own business eventually. And, and he kind of chuckled and he goes, see, you're going to be a ditch digger then, huh? 
And back then, you know, the, the movie Caddyshack came out only a year before, so that was kind of a term that was used in that movie. Looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. And he goes, the world needs ditch diggers, Rabbi. And then in front of, in the study hall, around a bunch of friends, most of which were going to college, he goes, so Rabbi's going to be a ditch digger. <laughs> you know, cackling like, right? I'll just never forget that moment because I was a little embarrassed. So I was partnered with my dad. At first I was trying to do this to get away from my dad. Love my dad, but he was a, he was a tough, hard ass of a guy and he was really tough to work for. My goal was to get away from my dad in a business that he didn't like, and I, f- I figured out, you know, I liked paving and he didn't like it. So what I said, I want to be the best of the best, you know, and he's like, oh, there's no money in paving. And I'm like, perfect. I'm glad you think so because I want to go after this business. My goal was to just kick the crap out of anybody in the business, right? I looked to the best people in the marketplace. I watched them. I mimicked them. If I saw a paving crew pave, I was watching them. If I saw a grading crew, I would watch them. I would look at the equipment they're using, time them, figure out how many square feet are they doing per hour. And within five, six years, we were doing better work than them. And we got to be bigger than them within 10 years. Estimating in sales, I always went to eat at the restaurants with the worst parking lots, and I'd measure them up and have a price ready for the manager or the owner, you know, after I ate, and I'm, you know, show that I'm a patron. Now that I'm a patron, i got to tell you, your, your parking lot looks terrible. Let me help you out. It was easy sales. The biggest job of my career at the time, the job was about a $50,000 job, so it was really a big deal to me. We're on the job, and I was very conscious that we had an area that was kind of soft in the parking lot. And when that happens, either undercut that area and replace it with dry material, and it takes a long time and it costs a lot of money, or you have to thicken up the pavement to make up for that soft area, right? So instead of a two inches of base asphalt, you go to three inches. So we're doing that base asphalt, and my dad's driving truck, but my dad wasn't really one that, to, to jump out there and pave the parking lot. See, but, but one day he jumped out uh, of the truck waiting for the other truck to dump, and he saw that we were paving a little thick on this job. And he said, uh, holy crap, you guys are paving way too thick there. What are you doing? And I said, hey, Dad, don't. Dad, this is purposeful. We're doing this because it's soft in here. Bullshit, he says. I, we're, we're not going to pave it that thick. He, he grabs a shovel and starts scraping the asphalt off the surface of the asphalt. I said, whoa, whoa, you got to stop. You're going to mess up this asphalt. And, and he goes, I ain't stopping out there. Come here, help me, guys. And he tells the guys to try to help him. One guy comes out with a shovel. He starts scraping out. I said, no, no, you can't do this. We're just going to have a puddle in this area. It's, it, you see, if, we, if it's two inches here, we're still got to go over the, instead of, a, instead of an inch over top, now we got to go, you know, two inches over this. And, you're, and, and it's too thick. You're going to have a pond in here. It compacts more where there's two inches adjacent to one inch, right? Anyway, so we're arguing. And, and, and I said, Dad, come here, come here. I pulled him away from the asphalt. And I said, Dad, you got to stay off the asphalt. You don't know what you're talking about. I got this job handled. And he said, we're going to lose our ass on this job. Uh, uh, you, we're going to do what I say. I said, no, you're not. You're going to do what I, you, you, I know what I'm doing out here, man. I, I, this is my job. I know. And he gave me a little shove to get away from me, and I kind of reached him. He went and swung at me, grazed the side of my head. And then we end up, I wrestled him onto a trailer next to us. And all of a sudden, he grabs a chain binder while he's on his back and starts hitting me with a chain binder. A chain binder is a pretty heavy piece of steel with you know two, two chain hooks on each side and a piece of steel in the middle. You know, 15 pounds, whatever it is, he's hitting me in the back with his chain binder. A guy that worked for me jumps in the middle. He's a big dude, so Mike's probably 250, 300 pounds. He breaks us up, and I'm looking at my dad. He's looking at me, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden, I look past my dad, and there's this glass wall, and it's their cafeteria. I didn't realize it was 1215, and there's just tons of people. I mean, 100, 150 people up against the glass, 
and you can see they're excited about this UFC fight. And they didn't have UFC back then, right? But, but they're really excited watching this. I look at him and I look at these people, I'm so embarrassed. I said, there's no way we're ever gonna be partners again after this year. And he says, oh, well, you ain't buying me out and I'm not buying you. I said, you're gonna have to either, either we're either gonna buy me out or I'm gonna buy you out because I'm never gonna be partners with you again after this year. And he says, baloney, I, you know, you're, we're, we're, you're, you need me as much as I need you. And I said, nope, I, I, I gotta tell you, this has not happened ever again. And so it took me all that winter going back and forth with them, hired attorneys and all that kind of stuff. And, ended up buying him out in the spring of the year of 1994 and it wasn't the best deal in the world. He thought he got a terrible deal and I thought I got a terrible deal. Struggled after buying him out to stay in business. I mean, I had, I had some tough times where you know, we, I paid him more money than I made in a, in a year or two. And so either way, we got through it. We, we went from a couple million revenues to six million revenues within you know, five, six, seven years and that became easier than to pay him off. In the long run, it was a good thing. It took a while, but we eventually made up. You know, I, I just learned over my life that we all get upset about things, but it's such a waste of time and a waste of energy, and it's such a bad thing, in my opinion, for your soul to be mad for any length of time about anything. I mean, you can be bothered by a mistake you might make because you're only going to learn if you're bothered by a mistake that you make, right? But once you figure out how to fix it, then you should be happy that it was worth the lesson, worth the cost of that mistake, right? If you're a good student, you can take the negative in somebody and say, man, I don't ever want to be that. And there's plenty of positive from that same person. You can say, I want to be like that, right? If you can dissect that in any person, you're going to have some good stuff in your life. Some people would say, you know, that was, that was abusive and that, that wasn't right. It was, that's not a good upbringing. I say, no, bologna, that's a good upbringing. My dad made me tougher. I, I, okay, so I, I bounced later on. When I was 19, 20 years old, I got a bouncing job in the wintertime. So I always worked in the wintertime, factories, whatever it was, to, so I didn't have to dip into my savings. I worked in a bar, in a very busy bar, and I'd get hit in the side of the face, not know it's coming, or right square in the nose, and it'd be like, wow, that was nothing compared to what my dad delivered. <laughs> It prepared me for a lot in life. I could deal with about anybody, even today. Some of the toughest customers that you could ever have, you find out when you get to know them, they're good people, but they're a little scary, you know, bigger, you know, maybe louder or whatever. But usually when you break through, they're like my dad. They got hearts of gold that you can deal with easy once you know them. And a lot of times people are afraid of those that are outspoken. Well, guess what? If they're outspoken, you can figure them out fast and you understand where they stand compared to the person that doesn't say anything, that's afraid to tell you what they're thinking, right? Without my dad, I wouldn't have the work ethic I have. Without my dad, I, I, I'd be afraid to walk into some meetings. Um, I'd be afraid to challenge some people, probably. But uh, because my dad is who he is, he raised me to be outgoing and not afraid of very much. My, mice, I'm afraid of mice, actually, i got to tell you. I'm afraid of mice. Besides that, I'm not afraid of much. And, and this unique life preparation that Gary got from his dad has helped him grow his company the Rabine Group, to $150 million in annual revenue, and their paving operation is the largest in the country. If you have paving, roofing, trucking, snow removal, or pipeline inspection needs, make sure you go to Rabine.com. That's R-A-B-I-N-E.com. After hearing this story, there's no way you'd want to work with anyone else. And by the way, the way he talks about his dad... I just love it because you could have looked at all that and just chalked it up to what a bad dad. But he looked for the good. He looked for what came of it that was positive and wrote the rest off because you're not going to have a perfect dad. It ain't happening. Now, if he was a really horrible guy who added no value, I get it. And some people have those kind of dads, and my goodness, you'd be better off like Eminem just never having known him, right? 
But for those that don't have perfect dads, but who taught those kind of lessons like hard work and endurance and perseverance, count yourself lucky. When we come back, more of Gary Rabine's story, our American Dreamers series, sponsored by Job Creators Network, continues here on Our American Stories. we return to our American Dreamers segment and self-proclaimed hillbilly Gary Rabine's story. The final portion continues here. So this poor girl, think about the hillbilly hit on you in a, in a bar in Wisconsin. I was 19 years old, she was 18 years old. I didn't know what to talk about. I was kind of nervous talking to this really pretty girl, right? You know, pretty girls maybe didn't talk to me very often, you know. <laughs> but just, not totally the truth because I, was, I wasn't not too rough looking, but I was definitely hillbilly. Anyway, so I'm talking to her and within minutes I'm saying, uh, you might have seen the truck when you came in the door. Uh, you just see the truck? And she's like, what? I said, my truck. My truck is right next to the door when you walk in, the 4x4 with a lift kit on and the roll bars. Uh, you know, it's uh, the, the, the truck with a the, with the cool paint job. You know, I, I put everything I had in this Chevy pickup truck. And she goes, uh, I'm really not much into trucks, so I probably wouldn't have seen it, you know. And she's thinking, what, what is this guy about, right? She's, she's looking for a way to get away from me, I'm sure. And I you know, got talking to her more and stuff and, and started getting along with her. But we got married at 21 and 22 years old, had three kids by 26. We stopped having kids because we really didn't think we could afford these kids, right? We had them fast and furious in a little over three years. So we've been married for 33 years now. And Cheryl's been an unfair advantage in a lot of ways. I mean, it's amazing that she had confidence in me because I was really taught by my dad that you're kind of a sissy if you believe in there's a God and all this kind of stuff. Even though my dad grew up as an altar boy and all that, at this point in his life, he was wanting us to be tough. And he, uh, he always taught us that, you know, oh, come on, you don't need God. You got me, you know, what do you need a God for? Hey, what kind of sissy are you, right? And uh, it's funny because he's gotten much closer to God in his late years of his life. But Cheryl, when I met Cheryl, was a strong Catholic faith. Her family was really close. They went to church on Sundays. We got married in a Catholic church, went to the pre-Cana stuff, the class before. Hey, I kind of got it. I was baptized Catholic, and that's about it. But I still didn't really dive into it much. Five, six, seven, eight years later, she kind of gave me an ultimatum. She said, you know, Gary, if you don't want to at least go to church with us once a month or something like that, I'm not sure I'm that crazy about this relationship. You're working seven days a week. You can't even take a day off a month. Could you just do that? And I said, you know what? I can do that. At the time I was partners with my dad, my dad got really bothered by this. I mean, he was really mad at me when I took that first Sunday off. So him and I got into it and, you know, I quit at one point and I was going to do something on my own then. And bottom line is he was having a problem. And eventually I said, you know what? I'm taking every Sunday off from now on because I kind of like this thing with Cheryl on Sundays. It's kind of neat going to church with the kids. He was really mad for a while about that and then eventually got over it. But it really probably took me probably even another five or six years before I started to really fall in love with the Catholic faith and, and understand it better. And then through challenges in business and personally, 
got closer each time. And the biggest challenge we've had, you know, businesses, to me, business is easy. If, if, if I went broke tomorrow, I, I'd figure it out again and I'd jump back and, and get after it again. But health is something you can't control, right? And so my wife had brain cancer two and a half years ago. Brain cancer is a tough one. It's a terminal cancer, and she's doing really well with it today, but it took uh, a long time for her to get back on her feet. Two major operations, brain surgeries in a few days, and she wasn't supposed to live through a lot of it. It was like four different times that she really could have lost her life really easily and, and wasn't expected to get through the second surgery. Even. So that was a tough time. But in that time, we found so many different things that we know never would have happened in our opinions, right? My opinion, if it wasn't for God above. And so I became much closer to my face since that time. And she's never once said, why me? Within 24 hours of her being conscious, after being out for a long time, she goes, I know why this happened to me. And I said, what are you talking about? You know what, what do you mean? You know what, why it happened, honey? She goes, uh, I've been reading all the CaringBridge things, all my emails. Of all the people I pray for every night, there's this handful of people that I pray for just that they would get closer to God. That's all I pray for for them. And every single one of them has responded in an amazing way, saying they never prayed as much in their life as they have since I've been down. She truly believes that that's why this happened to her. And sure enough, everybody we're talking about have gotten their life. It's a pretty neat thing. And I'm confident that without our faith that she's not here today. You know? I'm also confident that this cancer gets you much quicker than it's going to get her. Making money is great, but man, if, if you're fortunate enough that you have relationships, forget about money, relationships that we've created, that we've been able to be a part of, they're there for you in these tough times. That's the most important thing. So by uh, 37, 38 years old, saying, gosh, we could add more kids, we said maybe someday we'll adopt. And my three, four-year-old daughter in the back seat heard it, and she never shut up about it. She constantly bothers about, we should adopt. When are we going to adopt, right? She never forgot about it. I think that uh, inspiration comes in all different ways, right? We saw this family was very close to us, and their kids played sports with our kids, and all of a sudden they show up at the game with uh, two little kids from Croatia, twin boy and girl, and they're so cute. I, I would always play with them and give them a hard time at the games and stuff and mess with their ears and, and tap them on the shoulder, all that kind of stuff. And my wife and I say, leave those guys alone. I said, no, they're too much fun. They told us a story of how it all went and the adoption. We're like, gosh, that's so cool. They're changing the lives of these little kids. They end up adopting one more little girl, Christine, and uh, same way, cute as can be, a lot of fun, and then we adopted our son Nick right after that. And it was really based on the experience we saw, how their family bonded and got closer than ever. They had one daughter. This daughter was a great big sister to these kids. So we ended up adopting Nick. And since then, we've had people come up and said, you know what, we adopted a little girl, a little boy, because they share your story, right? So it's really neat that that can happen. A life gets, hopefully, put in a, in a position where there's, they have opportunity they would never had in the environment they're in. You know, our son in Russia, those kids in Croatia. So Christine, the youngest one, is one of our MVPs at our golf club at Bull Valley. I'm a hillbilly that the only reason I could belong to a club is I bought it. They wouldn't accept me there before. She's an amazing kid. Always with a huge smile on her face and just does awesome for us. She's going to probably eventually grow out of that job and want to go somewhere else, but uh, we want to keep her there as long as we can because she's so good. <laughs> it's like having one of my kids there, though, right? I always get a big hug from her every time I see her, and I tell the story often when people are there. I said, see this girl right here? She's one of the reasons we adopted Nick. Nick.
And Nick could be standing right there with a big smile on his face, our son, and he knows the story too. It's fun stuff. When you can do things like this in, in life, it's a blessing to be able to do that. Right? My wife is a saint, but her biggest concern when we were adopting was she was all worried, like really, really worried about one thing. Will she love him as much as she loves our other three kids? Because if she can't, she won't be able to forgive herself. I said, Cheryl, you're going to love him no matter what. We're going to love this kid. If we love our other kids just a little bit more, we're never going to tell him, right? So what are you worried about? He's going to have a great life with parents that love him. Well, if it's a little bit less, then it's a little bit less, right? I'm not worried a bit. So sure enough, uh, she's, well, I'm not happy with that. If it's, just a, if it's a little less, I'm not, ha- not going to be happy. I'm going to be bothered for the rest of my life if that's the case. I said, don't sweat it. You'll be fine, right? And it was like six months later, because this little guy was a challenge. He was cute as can be and funny as can be, but he was not easy. He had some baggage that came with him. But within about six months, I come home one day, and she's just happy as can be. And I'm saying, well, what's up, man? You look like you had a great day. She goes, I realized today that I love him every bit as much as I love our three. I said, come on, I knew that all along. I've loved him since day one, you know. And, but she's the one really spending the time with him, taking care of him, going through all the issues with him. My wife did a ton of work to figure out his neuro issues and all that, and Nick is a normal guy today. I mean, he's really a normal guy. Also, my other three kids are definitely were driven closer together because of him, right? So bringing him in when my kids were early teens, they bonded with him a bunch, and they became closer because they had this little life in there, this little brother that they all bonded around. He's been a blessing. These kids all know how to work. They understand work ethic, understand what it takes to get up and consistently get up to get to a job. As long as I can give them that, I think I'm giving them a better gift than a lot of other things. They don't need my wife or I ever again. I mean, if something happened to me and I lost every bit of money I have and every bit of my fortune, my kids are going to kick butt. They're going to make probably more money than I ever made that, that I could ever give them anyway. That's a good feeling. My son, Nick, he's got that Russian work instinct. It's pretty wild, but the kid, ever since he came here, two and a half, three years old, if I was working in the yard, he was working next to me. And he would be mad if it was raining out, he had to go inside. Now, this last summer at 17, he worked on our cruise, shoveling asphalt and laboring, and, and he loved it. He came home with a big, dirty as heck, with a big smile on his face every day. He will do well in a job, whatever job he picks, because he'll focus on it, and he'll outwork people around him. I just think that's the best gift you can give a kid. And if, you, and if they're super smart academically and they can be doctors and lawyers or whatever it is professionally, that's awesome too. But without work ethic, again, they're, they're not going to be the best of that either, right? So I think it's giving them a sense of whatever they're passionate about, driving themselves to be the best, hardest working person there is in that passion that they love. And if they can do that, they're going to be happy people. And what a great story, and what a unique voice. And if you enjoy Gary Rabine's voice, you'll love his podcast that's called Ditch Digger CEO. Just search for the Ditch Digger CEO wherever you get your podcasts. I love the end there when he was talking about that work ethic. He was, was teaching his kids, and he had said, if something happened to me and my fortune, my kids are going to kick butt. They'll make more money than me. And I think so many of us as parents, we want to make sure that we get those kids to self-sufficiency, away from entitlement, and into work and a work ethic. Because that's the best thing you can do for your kids. And I think more and more parents are coming to understand that in this age of entitlement and this age of overprotective parents. Uh, we're not really helping. And I think we all know that, those of us who do it. And I think we all do it a little bit too much. Gary Rabine's story, Our American Dreamers segment here on Our American Stories. And again, send your American Dreamer stories to Our American Network 
org. Someone in your town, someone you know, who built something from nothing. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history. And your stories, too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Up next, a great storyteller himself, and we're here to talk to the author of a book called The Godfather Legacy, the untold story of the making of the classic Godfather trilogy. And by the way, it features some terrific stills. Go to Amazon.com and get it. And Harlan Lebo is the author. He's also the author of 100 Days. And you can get that at Amazon.com as well. A terrific book about four big events in 1969 that changed the arc of this country. A great cultural storyteller about this great country. Harlan Lebo joins us. Thank you, Lee. You bet. Let's talk about The Godfather. And, you know, in the opening, you said this. Francis Ford Coppola has often said that the story of The Godfather is a romance about a king with three sons. Talk about that. The Godfather really is very much a family story. It's certainly not a family picture by any means in the traditional sense of a rated G film, but it is a movie about a family. Uh, there, Of course, there are many things about the mafia and violence in the film, but at the heart of the story are the struggles within a family, a very powerful man, his three sons and his daughter, and in particular... The struggles of Michael, his youngest son, who wanted to stay out of the family business, as they call it, but winds up, of course, at the end of The Godfather, the film and the book, both uh, as powerful and as ruthless as his father could have ever imagined. So it's very much a family picture. In that way, it's not a mafia picture. It's a family picture with the mafia as a backdrop. And maybe this is why some of the other, quote, mafia pictures didn't succeed they didn't lead with that family story first. That is true. I mean, it's the same way as looking at Gone with the Wind. It's Gone with the Wind isn't a movie about the Civil War. It just has the Civil War as a backdrop. It's about the struggles of a woman during the Civil War. But The Godfather is the same way. The whole issue of family and trust and love are very much a part of The Godfather. In fact, they're integral to The Godfather. Michael, the youngest son, played by Al Pacino, never would have done what he did, which is become part of the family business, if it was not for his love of his father. And that's a real torment for him. But it doesn't stop him from becoming the ruthless killer that he does become. Indeed. And let's start where we should always start, and that's the beginning. And let's talk about a guy named Mario Puzo. He's the author of the book. He was born, as you note in your book, In Hell's Kitchen, New York. And it's very different today, Hell's Kitchen, than it was when Mario Puzo grew up. Describe his, his upbringing, where he grew up and how he grew up, and a little bit about his life. Right. If you look at Hell's Kitchen or other parts of New York, for example, where they filmed The Godfather Part Two, they were not good parts of New York then. But 
the city has changed and continues to change, uh, and it's it's much nicer now. But Hell's Kitchen was the classic tenement section of New York City for many decades, and that's where Mario Puzo was from. He was young. He was poor. Uh, he eventually became a civil servant working in New York, uh, and at the same time was a struggling fiction author through the 1960s. He wrote good books, but they didn't sell very well at all until he decided to pick up an idea that he thought about all along the way and was mentioned just a bit in one of his other books, which is the experiences of a family involved in the underworld of New York. And that's when the idea for The Godfather came along. And this was a massive bestseller for Puzo. Talk about that. Describe some of the remarkable success of this book. Yes, the book itself was one of the great page-turning books uh, one summer that it came out. Apuzo had decided to give writing one last shot. He uh, maxed out all the credit cards. Uh, he also got a little money from Paramount Pictures, which we can talk about in a minute. But um, but this really was his last shot at writing. He sent off the manuscript. He came back from a vacation and he came back to discover that not only had the book sold, but the paperback rights had sold for about $400,000. And in 1970 money, that's a lot of money. So the book was a gigantic hit, number one on the bestseller list for months and months. Uh, and it was a natural fit, you would think, to be made into a film. But that's where other problems started, and we can talk about those in a minute, too. Yeah, let's do that, because in the end... The film business had not had great success with what are so-called mob movies. Uh, they'd failed in the box office, but yet Mario Puzo gets an advance. Talk a little bit about uh, that process. The process of giving writers advances wasn't done very often, but it was done most frequently by an executive named Peter Bart, who is still very active in the film business. Right now, he is a columnist and has been for years writing some of the most intelligent work about the film business and entertainment in general. But Peter believed very strongly that some writers needed a little help from now and then to keep going as all struggling writers do. Uh, he had already supported other books that had done very well, like love story, which did very well for Paramount pictures. Uh, so Peter Bart supported Puzo with a few bucks now and then, uh, and they held on to the rights to make the, to make the Godfather the book into a film if it turned out to be a success. Well, of course, it turned out to be a huge success, which naturally led it into becoming a, a film project in uh, 1971. So, in the end, Peter Bart was putting markers on certain authors and hoping they'd pop. And every once in a while, he might get a really great discount. But that wasn't why he was doing it. He was just trying to keep it sounded like good writers in the stables and close to him. Yes, he was. And it worked very well. I mean, writers felt loyal to him as they should have. He had faith in them, which he should. Uh, and it worked out very successfully on at least two movies for Paramount Pictures, uh, two of the biggest movies of the 60s and 70s, Love Story and eventually The Godfather. And we're talking to Harlan Lebo. The book is The Godfather Legacy, the untold story of the making of the classic Godfather trilogy. And when we come back, so much more from Coppola to Pacino to Brando, and, well, stories you're just going to love. This is Lee Habib, Harlan Lebo, The Godfather. The stories of both continue here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with Harlan Lebo, author of The Godfather Legacy. Let's talk next about another important person, his name, Francis Ford Coppola. It turns out that as everybody was looking to place this with a director, as you write, no one wanted to direct this film. Who is Coppola? Why did he matter? Well, you're right. No one did want to direct the film. Uh, Even though The Godfather, the book, was a huge bestseller, it was thought at the time that a movie about the mafia would not be very successful. And primarily, that's because what Paramount wanted to do with it. They had supported Puzo as a writer, but they didn't want to support the film any more than any other relatively low-budget shoot-em-up picture about crime. And as a result, there were no takers on directors for the film and very little interest in the project. That problem was compounded by the fact that a film called The Brotherhood had come out at about the same time, which had huge a huge budget, big stars, uh, and it flopped. Because, again, it was just not well thought of as a topic to make movies about the mafia. Well, eventually, the movie was offered to Francis Coppola to direct. And Coppola was a young, just-getting-started director. He'd only had, uh, I think, three films at that point and had written another one. But part of the reason they went to Coppola was he seemed solid enough as a director, but he was also Italian-American. And that was crucial to the project at the time. And we could certainly talk about the problems within the Italian-American community in the 1960s and early 1970s with Hollywood. But the short version is that it was viewed within many Italian-American families that any time an Italian-American person appeared in a film, it was in a crime role. And there were no non-crime roles, legitimate characters who were Italian-American in films or on television. Well, Paramount came around to the idea that one of the ways to solve that problem is to have an Italian-American director. They went to Coppola, they offered the project to him, and he turned it down too. He came around because of the same things we were talking about a few minutes ago. He finally did read the book all the way through. He only read sort of the smutty parts up front before he declined. But then he realized the same thing that we did, which is that the movie is not about the mafia at its core. What it's about is a family and the problems of a particular family and the struggles of that family. That's the story at its core. And if you focus on Michael, the problems of the youngest son, then it becomes even more interesting. So Coppola agreed to do the film with many conditions, uh, and he was able to convince Paramount to buy in. Let's talk about Coppola just a little bit more. He had polio when he was young. And this, I think, would really change him and, and perhaps even shape him because as a young boy, curiosity and his, and his retreat into his own world may have become actually something positive. Also, his father, uh, who, as he put it, I lived in a household of a jealous man and it changed me. I said, I'm never going to sit around waiting for my break to come. His father was a conductor. I'm going to make it and I did. So talk about his dad, Uh, He grew up in Detroit, Coppola, and also polio. Coppola did grow up in Detroit uh, and and a few other places as well. His father, Carmine, was a very talented musician and composer, but he always felt like he was waiting for his break to come, like he was waiting for that knock to come on the door. Uh, And it never did, or at least it never did until his son helped him later. Uh, And Coppola realized that you just can't wait around for these things. You need to go out and make your own breaks. 
And he did make his own breaks. And of course, here was a break that had been handed to him because of the talent he had developed and he turned it down and then finally did accept it. But um, he made very strong demands about how the film needed to be made. The, the primary demand, of course, was that it be filmed entirely on location in New York, which is a very expensive proposition at that point. The studio wanted to make it either in studio or in, on the streets in Los Angeles, which would have been much cheaper. They had a very small budget in mind for the film. And of course, by today's standards, the budget was very small. But by the standards then and the struggles within the motion picture industry in the early 1970s, it was a very small budget. Coppola got more. Uh, he also got the right. Keep in mind, The Godfather is a huge book uh, and has many subplots. And he made the case that he was going to focus as much as he could on the trials and tribulations of the family. And he stood his ground. And that's and there were many times where he had to stand his ground over the next few months. Well, indeed, storytellers in the end focuses so much on point of view or, or what so much of artistic choices are all about. I want to quote from your book, and this is Coppola. I got into what the book is really about. The story of the family, this father and his sons, and questions of power and succession. And I thought it was a terrific story if you could just get out all that other stuff. And that, in the end, is what he did, isn't it? Yes, he did. Uh, the Godfather is a movie about violence and about, in some ways, about love and about family. But it's one of the best American films ever made, or one of the best films ever made, about power and what power how power can be used and how power can corrupt. Uh, and that those are the elements that Coppola went for. And in all fairness, the movie was very, of course, very popular at the time. But even more important, it is a lasting treasure of American cinema. If you ask practically anyone the kinds of films they like or the films that they their favorite films, The Godfather is almost always one of the films that everybody everybody really loves. And it's true that you go from to experts, film experts, straight down to Joe Public, and all of us love this movie because, in some deep way, it speaks to all of us. All of us have a Fredo in the family, for instance. We just do. And what do you do with that older brother? who's not going to inherit the family pharmaceutical business, right? Or the, the family auto body shop. Um, these are real problems that occur. And I think that's what the, the, the Coppola's genius was, was making this a universal story, Harlan. It really was quite universal. The, uh, the issues of love and family and conflict are so clear in the film. I mean, let's face it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of violence in the Godfather. Of course there is. That's, that is part of the story. It's part of the culture. Uh, it tells the story in many ways of the family itself. But the problems within the family, in particular, of course, Al Pacino playing Michael and his struggles to stay away from the family business all fall apart. And that's the intriguing part of the story, right up to the very end. What you do with the, the headstrong, violent, oldest son that sort of takes care of itself about halfway through the movie when he's killed. But then always that the story of Fredo, the middle son and, and what happened to him or what didn't happen to him, how he was sort of left by the, by the side of the road in many respects that gets picked up again in much more detail in Godfather part two. Indeed. And you know, as you were talking about that, that desire of Coppola to make sure that this 
shot this film was shot on location. He also wanted it to be a period piece, Harlan. And you wrote beautifully about this. I want to share just one little part because this was expensive. When a New York City maintenance crew removed a modern concrete streetlight, it cost $250 to install an original shepherd's crook light of the earlier era and cost another $250 for the next. At the end of the shoot, the shepherd's crook light would be removed again, another $250, and the ugly concrete modern light replaced for another $250. This was done time and again, a little detail but to Francis Ford Coppola, all of these details piled upon one another created this authentic life for which this movie and this city could serve as a backdrop. And actually, I think New York City was a character in the movie. Oh, New York City absolutely is a character. If you ever went to see what New York City looked like in real life at about the time The Godfather was being filmed, see a movie called The Hot Rock which is a hilarious comedy crime picture with Robert Redford and George Siegel. That was shot in almost entirely on location in New York within months of when The Godfather was filmed. But it was a real problem filming The Godfather. The film was shot primarily in the spring and summer of 1971. And they were filming in 19, what was supposed to be 1946, 47, and 48. Well, that doesn't seem all that long before. It was only 23 years earlier, but it was a long time in the history of New York. And the city really looked nothing like it did in 1946. Um, and constant attention to detail and fixing the streets and putting up posters or big trucks to block things that were would otherwise be seen on screen was a constant challenge when making the film. One of the great pleasures of watching The Godfather is watching the detail of the film, uh, just adding extra details. Dean Tavolaris, the production designer, there's one scene on the streets of a, a tenement area where James Kahn's character, Sonny, the oldest son, beats up his brother-in-law because his brother-in-law has attacked Sonny's sister, the youngest in the family. Look around at what's going on in that scene, just at the decor and the, the posters of political campaigns and posters that are falling down and tattered away that have posters underneath them or the cars or the shepherd's crook light poles. All that detail was a constant challenge, but well worth it because The Godfather looks incredibly good and incredibly realistic. Indeed, and when we continue more with Harlan Lebo, author of The Godfather Legacy here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories. We're talking to Harlan Lebo, the author of The Godfather Legacy, and the next character in this remarkable film, well, it's Marlon Brando. And I'm going to read uh, from your book. It says, Coppola wanted Brando. The Don, in quotes, is in the movie no more than 30% of the time, explained the producer, but we had to have an actor with the power and mystique to permeate those scenes in which he didn't appear. Brando had that blunt power. Why did Coppola want Brando and no one else for this role? Well, because of that blunt power. 
actually, when you look at it now, I believe Brando's character is only in the three-hour Godfather about 43 minutes, something like that. But his aura is over every frame of the film. And he had exactly what it took to make that character of Don Vito Corleone come alive. Well, now we're looking at it in retrospect a lot of years later. Uh, then Brando was viewed by some as not bankable. So most of his films just before The Godfather had not done very well at all. Uh, he was also viewed as impossible to work with by some people who probably unfairly said that he was really very tough on the set and was a difficult, difficult for directors for many things, many reasons. He was not anyone's choice to be the Don except for Coppola who, who went for him, who met with Marlon Brando and Brando certainly wanted the part and created his own character right in front of Coppola's eyes as he envisioned the Don being. Keep in mind that, that, Marlon Brando is young when this movie is made. This is 1971. He was 47 years old. But he gave the character the gravitas, the dignity, uh, the power, and the authority that it really needed. And Coppola was right. And Coppola had to fight for practically every character. But the key characters he had to fight, fight for was first Marlon Brando and then later Al Pacino. Well, let's talk about Pacino next. He was a young actor, an up-and-comer. Not a large body of work, but my goodness, a fascinating one, both in cinema and in the theater. Uh, he was an up-and-comer and a real riser. But talk about Pacino. My goodness, for a lot of the time, Pacino didn't think he was going to keep his job. No, he didn't. And Al Pacino, it's so hard for us to think of it now, Al Pacino, the superstar, the legend of Hollywood. But in 1971, he was like many other struggling actors in New York with no work. You know, he would wait tables. He would put, he would put pamphlets on cars, uh, just trying to make ends meet while he got acting jobs and did very well on the stage when he did. But a lot of other people did too. Uh, he had made a couple of movies, including a superb role as a junkie in Panic in Needle Park. Uh, but he's small. Uh, he's not traditionally handsome. I mean, there were some of the studio who thought Robert Redford could play Michael, but Coppola knew better. And he tested endlessly for the part of Michael, uh, throwing Pacino's screen tests in as often as he could. But once Pacino got into costume, once he was on set, once his measured, reserved performance started to come out, I think people finally realized immediately that he was perfect for the role. Indeed. I'm going to quote from the book because this is what Pacino thought because he was just worried, well, beyond all measure. Quote, I was out, Pacino was convinced, until the murder scene in the restaurant shot on March 31st. Quote, they kept me after that scene, Pacino recalled. That looked pretty good, I guess, when you shoot a guy. They wanted me to assert myself. So in that scene, there's kind of an assertion, and that's the scene where he shoots the cop and he shoots those guys, drops the gun, and the next thing you know, he's off to Italy uh, to just avoid, well, capture by authorities. I'll talk about that, that scene because, my goodness, it is the one where his, his performance comes to life. It really does. Uh, keep in mind that, that Al Pacino's character, Michael Corleone, is struggling about what to do with his life. He's just out of the army. He knows he does not want to be part of the, of the family business, family business in quotes, but um, he also feels a duty to his father 
and feels that he needs to take care of the people who are responsible for having his father shot and severely wounded, uh, which he does. He murders a police captain and a drug dealer at a restaurant in uh, the Bronx. I think Pacino was probably getting a little behind himself at that point. Uh, the studio certainly thought that those scenes were fabulous, which they are. If you look at Pacino in those scenes, that undercurrent of rage and fear in those scenes as he's preparing for the two murders is un- unmistakable and unforgettable. But what really sold the studio were some of the first scenes that he shot, which were on the streets of New York with Diane Keaton, his girlfriend, Kay, as they were walking away from Radio City Music Hall, and he discovers that his father has been shot when he sees it on the headline of a newspaper. And that simmering concern and how he presents himself on screen in beautiful color close-ups by cinematographer Gordon Willis with his, his very dark eyes and penetrating stare, that's what sold the studio. They were with him from the start. There was no question at that point. And that scene, somehow, we get innocence to experience in almost a nanosecond, Harlan. Yes. He, it's, in fact, it's really sad. You can see, after you've seen the movie once, you see him walking on a street and you realize before he walked past this newsstand, he was the carefree kid he was trying to become. And when he passes the newsstand and Kay has seen the headlines, you know that it's all on the way down. Yep. Everything's about to change. Let's talk about John Cazale because people don't know his name, but my goodness, he was in only five movies before, well, cancer took him too early. All five of those movies were Oscar-nominated pictures. Five for five. That's crazy. Who was John Cazale? John Cazale was a wonderful character actor. He played the part of Fredo, the misunderstood middle son, uh, as perfectly as it could possibly have been played, creating all kinds of conflict, not as much in Godfather Part 1, but became integral to the story in Godfather Part 2. John Cazale was in five classic films of the 1970s. Besides The Godfather Part 1 and Part 2, he was in Dog Day Afternoon, The Deer Hunter, and The Conversation, five of the best films ever made. Um, So that's quite a legacy for a man whose life ended way too quickly. There's a great picture in your book of Robert Duvall, another great actor, holding up cue cards under his jacket with Marlon Brando reading from those cue cards. And there are cue cards all over the room in the set. And I'm just laughing. Who were those cue cards for and why were they there? The cue cards are for Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando was not a lazy actor, although some probably would have said he was. He was definitely a method actor. And he felt very strongly that for his style of acting, studying the script as little as possible and making it as spontaneous as possible was important for his roles. So for many of his parts, for all of his career after a certain point, he almost always had cue cards just off camera. And logistics of a movie set being what they are, sometimes the cue card can be right in front of you, and sometimes it's right on the lap of the person that you're talking to. So they had cue cards everywhere. Uh, some of them big, some of them poster size, some of them just little note size sitting on a, a counter. It's too bad because those those cue cards are worth a fortune now. I'd love to have some. Yeah, just want to be great. You just, you know, memorialize it forever in your home. We're talking to Harlan Lebo. The book is The Godfather Legacy, the untold story of the making of the classic Godfather trilogy. 
And by the way, it features some never-before-published production stills. And go get this on Amazon or on eBay or wherever you can. If you love The Godfather, my goodness, you'll love this book. And Harlan has also written 100 Days. And it's about four events in 100 Days in 1969 that changed the world. And it's the moon landing, the invention of the Internet. It started there, folks. Also, the Manson murders and Woodstock, all within 100 days. Pick that up at Amazon.com or, heck, go to a bookstore, buy the actual book and read it. When we continue more with Harlan Lebo, this is Our American Story. continue here with our american stories we're talking to harlan lebo author of the godfather legacy now let's get on to the filming of this movie because it was quite a show in new york it turns out when scenes would be shot hundreds and hundreds and possibly even thousands of new yorkers were rushing to these spots to watch history get made and i think people knew something really big was happening Oh, I think so. Uh, they didn't know Al Pacino at the time, but they certainly knew some of the other characters. But that's one of the fun things about being in either New York or Los Angeles, too, but especially New York because it's so much more compact. Because on a summer day, there's almost always something going on in the way of a movie being made, um, which was true for the spring and summer of 1971. The Godfather was filming in all sorts of places. And there's there's one scene when when Al Pacino's character uh, is being is waiting to be picked up and he's standing in front of what was Tut Shore's restaurant and he's standing right on the sidewalk all by himself. But what you can't see is 15 feet away, there are hundreds of people milling around watching the film being shot. Let's talk about one, let's, since we're talking about scenes, let's talk about a scene that Robert Town wrote. And Robert Town is a legendary script doctor. And it's the scene where Michael and his father are in the backyard talking about life. And it's, it's such a beauty, and it's such a sparsely written scene. Talk about what happened. How, why was Town called? How long did he have to write this scene? And it may be one of the great scenes in movie history. It really is one of the great scenes in movie history. There is no question. It's two incredible actors facing each other as father and son, talking about, in only a few minutes, uh, several key issues, not just the threat of to the life of the youngest son, Michael, and what might happen to him in a plot to overthrow him, but also the father's concern, the Don's concerns about why Michael's life had gone the way it did, and the Don's regrets about what had happened there. And that scene was written many times, and no one was particularly happy with it. And finally, it got to the point when they were making the film and they couldn't wait any longer to get the scene right. They had to call in Robert Town, who's written many scripts of his own, but was also known at the time and for years after as a great script doctor, someone who could come in, swoop in, save the day, 
And that's exactly what he did. He came to New York. He read the script. He talked with those involved. And he took a scene which was only okay and transformed it into an absolute masterpiece of cinema, uh, which it is. Indeed. You know, with these lines at the end, I'm looking, you actually have a part of the screenplay here, and it says, Vito Corleone, I knew that Santino was going to have to go through all this, and Fredo, dot, 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 well, Fredo was, dot, 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 well, I never... And we all knew, without saying anything, he said everything, right? And then he said, I never wanted this for you. I worked my whole life. I don't apologize. I take care of my family. And I refuse to be a fool, so on and so forth. And then in the end, he says, well, there wasn't enough time, Michael. There wasn't enough time. And Michael says, we'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. It's just so beautiful. It really is. And Robert Town knew, and for a long time knew, the... The key to writing any scene is often what you don't say. We didn't have to describe Fredo at that point at all because we knew that Fredo just had that undefinable, he wasn't right for any of this. Um, later in the scene, when the Don talks about how he'd hoped that Michael would wind up being governor or senator, Michael doesn't go into a long explanation of why that wasn't necessary. All he says is, another pesanovante, which means... Another big shot, just like, eh, you know, it would have been just another big shot. It wouldn't have been anything important. It wouldn't have been for me. Um, what he would have done is left unsaid, but the point is, with two words, uh, he, he negates any of the possibilities of what he might have wound up being. And that's just beautiful writing. It is. And then beautiful acting. We have one last scene we'll talk about. There's Brando in the garden scene with his grandson, and this orange, and this is the actor's decision, right? I mean, this isn't Coppola. This isn't the script. Uh, this is the actor using an orange, well, to remarkable effect. Talk about that last great scene, Marlon Brando and that orange. This is the scene when Marlon Brando's character dies. He's in the, he's in the family tomato patch with his grandson, Anthony. It's actually his real name. is also Anthony. Uh, and... The scene was scripted for, for Brando's character to die, but a lot of it was left to Brando and Anthony to work out in, in, well, actually for Brando to work out in, in interacting with Anthony. Anthony wasn't young and wasn't old enough to really act for himself. Um, and one of the things that Brando did was something from his own childhood was he took an orange, he ate part of it. And then like many of us, he, he put the rind in his teeth. And it made it look like a funny face. And he actually cut teeth into it. Uh, and it really scared Anthony. It genuinely scared him. If you see him on screen, he's actually scared by this. But it plays so beautifully as this tender, intimate scene between grandfather and grandson. And it's a wonderful contrast to what happens a few seconds later, which is that Brando's character, the Don, uh, passes away, falls into the tomato plants and dies. Uh, it's absolutely wonderfully shot. And by the way, just a, a little unsung hero of this film was Gordon Willis, a cinematographer who shot every frame of the film as if it was literally a frame from a photograph or a painting. It is so physically beautiful, the whole film. It's wonderful. Indeed. Let's talk about the music, too, while we're at some of the other attributes. Talk about the music, because, my goodness, I don't know that the movie is the movie without the music either. 
Well, one of the things that we haven't really chatted about is Coppola really felt strongly that to convey that sense of family is that there needed to be a lot of issues of legitimate Italian-American culture in the film. Uh, and, you know, they had meals and conversations in the film. There were many little touches about Italian-American culture. And what he felt strongly about, among many things he felt strongly about, was he really wanted to have an Italian composer create the music for the film. So he called on Nino Rota, the composer probably best known for doing many of the best of films of Federico Fellini. And Rota wrote the music for The Godfather. And what a soundtrack it is. And it's not just what we remember. I mean, that opening scene in The Godfather, we get to see many Americans had never seen a Tarantella. They'd never seen right. it. The dance, not just the music, but the dance. Right. Some of that music was not Rota's music. That was traditional uh, Italian music. But yeah, the, the film opens at the wedding of Connie, the youngest the youngest uh, child in the family and the, the only daughter in the Corleone family. You see great scenes of partying and festivities. And it's a real slice of Italian-American culture from the 1940s. Yeah, and even the word cannoli gets thrown in in one of the great improvised lines in the movie. Talk about that. You write just a drop about that as well. Yes, it is. That is a great, a great line. Uh, after one of the family henchmen, Clemenza, kills a uh, traitor to their cause, the one who'd sold out the Don and got him set up to be shot, they go into Little Italy in New York. Clemenza gets lunch while his boys wait in the car, and he picks up a package of cannoli. Then on the way home, they stop, and the traitor is killed, but the box of cannoli is still in the car. So that's one of the great lines from the film and from any film. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. <laughs> and boy, cannoli lovers understand the gravity of that, that uh, command as well. Let's talk about the box office success, because this could have been one of the first movies where folks lined up. Talk about that. Incredible as it may seem now, movies were not marketed the same way they are today. The idea then, and for way too long, was you would build up interest in a film by having road shows for it in a select number of theaters as opposed to showing it in hundreds and hundreds of theaters or thousands of theaters all on one big weekend. And that's what happened with The Godfather as well, where they opened it in several theaters, or well, many theaters in major cities across the country, but not in thousands of theaters. And it was an instantaneous around the block for hours and hours a day sensation. Uh, absolute gigantic hit in the summer of 1972, uh, later becoming the, the, the biggest box office attraction of all time, made more money than any other film up to that time. But it was huge. And then, of course, when it opened wide, it opened wide and very successfully. And every actor got a career boost from this movie, right, Harlan? Oh, absolutely. This was a huge boost for everyone involved. All, all of the, the, Younger characters, the people who played the sons, James Kahn, uh, Al Pacino, and then an adopted son played by Robert Duvall, all became legitimate stars immediately. They were all nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Brando's career got a huge boost. Talia Shire's career as playing Connie, the youngest in the family, also uh, got a huge boost and went on to, to do all the Rocky films, among other things. Uh, this was a giant, a giant success story for everyone. 
Indeed. I'll close with the words of one of the producers. And these are the words, quote, Well, we got the cast we wanted and the budget was tight. That's true. But sometimes you have to be more imaginative to get what you want for less money. Beyond those two constraints, there was nothing else the studio put on us. Nothing. When the script was being written, that was entirely in our control. We had no constraints on what we shot. We got the cut we wanted. Even Bob Evans backed us on the length. After all the trouble in production, the irony of it is that the movie that we made is the movie that we wanted to make, and God bless that was so. Harlan Lebo, thanks for the book. The book is The Godfather Legacy. Go to Amazon and get it. Also get 100 Days. That's available on Amazon.com, too. These stories both here on Our American Stories. Thank you.